Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Today's reading comes from Romans. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak only eats vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does, n- the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another, another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so for the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You, then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can take a seat. Thank you, Lizzie. I was sitting in a comically undersized chair at Grove Elementary School, Union Public School, in May of 2015. I was proctoring a state exam, and I was in this cute little chair. The first time that I wrote down the phrase, a community shaped by the gospel. And as I read it, I felt like, ooh, this feels important. I was dreaming about church planting. I was hoping at one point to be a church planter. And that phrase, a community shaped by the gospel, was later lengthened. It became the the mission of our church, who we hope to be together. Say this with me, is a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. I think there's a lot of confusion in church world about what it means to be a community, what it means to be a church. That we conflate the idea of church with this building or a church building. Or we think about church as the worship service itself, like a religious variety show. Or we think about church as the pastor. Or we think about church as religious content on the internet. And none of these things are the church. The church is this this community of friendships under the lordship of Christ that's uh, transnational. We're we're joined with people of all nations who call Jesus their Lord. It's transhistorical. We're united in one family with people all throughout history who've bowed their knee to the Lord Jesus. The church is this community of friendships under the lordship of Christ. It's the, it's the, in the visible and invisible body of believers. So we tried to have little cultural nudges as a church to help us develop this imagination that the church are these internet, inter, interrelating networks of people. I mean, one practical thing, hey, did you notice we got some light bulbs changed? Woohoo! Thank you to Mike and Paul. Thank you for that. I appreciate it very much. Those are inconvenient. 
Um, I love the lights being up because I want us to see each other. And the music is generally simple enough that we can hear each other singing. And in seeing each other and hearing one another sing, we just have this little nudge, this little reminder that, that church is not about individual religious consumers coming to receive their, you know, religious pellets for the week. But it's about we as a community of people learning to take on and follow uh, the way of Jesus. What's interesting is the lectionary, which is the thing we follow that assigns our, our scriptures for each week that I preach on, have really been highlighting us in the last couple of weeks about the things that encourage and the things that hinder a flourishing Christian community. And last week in Matthew chapter 18, we looked at when there's sin in the church or when there's conflict in the church. When your brother sins against you, what are you meant to do? And it leads us to the uncomfortable conversations of confrontation. And some of us, I know, we're trying to practice that this week. Someone came up to me. I love it. It's like, hey, I got a Matthew 18 you. It's like, dang, but I'm glad you did it. You know, and I think about uh, how the scriptures also push us if we want to take this teaching to its logical conclusion to not only wait for confrontation, but actually ask other people for feedback. What is it like to be on the other side of me? Some of you announced to me that you intended to do this. How many people asked for feedback this week? Chickens! Oh, okay, okay. And, and by show of your face, uh, how did it go? Okay, mixed results. Okay, yet it's always mixed results. Um, and then finally, when we know that we've sinned against someone else, we don't have to wait for confrontation, we don't have to passively ask for feedback, but the gospel just trains us that when we know we've sinned against others, we just confess it. Hey, I screwed up. James 5.16, if you confess your sins, oh, no, that's not it. Confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. James 5.16, this is what we do. What we're doing today is not talking about sin strictly in the church, but when there are, are honest areas of disagreement within the church. There are differences of beliefs and perspectives on what the Apostle Paul calls disputable matters. Verse 1, chapter 14, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Now, in speaking of the weak, Paul is addressing those who are strong. Who are the weak and strong in, in the letter to the Romans? And what is a disputable matter? Well, those who are weak, as Paul uses the term here, are not those who are physically weak. It's not even those who are morally weak, who are having a difficult time saying no to temptation. These are people who have a weakness of conscience, a person who's unsure what what his or her faith permits them to do. So in the context of Gentile Rome, this was most likely Jewish Christians who were unsure about whether they could eat meat because this meat may have been sacrificed to an idol. And so if you're terrified that you may accidentally eat meat that has been sacrificed to an idol, what do you do? You eat only vegetables. Pray for those people who eat only vegetables. So the strong then were most likely Gentile believers or or, or even Jewish believers like Paul who had no issue eating meat even if it had been sacrificed to an idol because from their perspective, you know, Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it. He founded it on the seas and established on the rivers. Like, look, I'm going to eat in gratitude to God. Jesus is Lord and King over all creation, so everything's cool with me. What Paul insists on is that these issues of what you eat or what you don't eat, 
uh, must not divide the church. These things that are disputable matters must not divide the church. Verse 2 says, One person's faith allows them to eat anything. Another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. But these differences of opinion should not break us apart. John Stott, the Anglican theologian, says, We must not elevate non-essentials, especially issues of custom and ceremony, to the level of essential and make them tests of orthodoxy, meaning, do you believe all the right things? We must not let these non-essentials, especially with regard to custom and ceremony, don't elevate them to the level of orthodoxy in a condition of fellowship, meaning, if you don't think like we think, you can't come to my party. The 16th century reformers called such things adiaphora, matters of indifference, whether as here they were customs and ceremonies or secondary beliefs which are not part of the gospel or the creed. Don't let these things that are not central, essential, indisputable break us apart. In either case, they are matters on which Scripture does not clearly pronounce. The problem is how to handle conscientious differences in matters on which Scripture is either silent or seemingly open to more than one interpretation. What do we do when, honest to God, we're trying to discern the truth with humility, with gentleness, with respect? We're reading the Scriptures and we're coming up with differing viewpoints. What do we do? How do we handle this in such a way that it doesn't break or disrupt Christian fellowship? At the same time, says Stott, we must not marginalize or trivialize fundamental theological or moral questions as if they were only culture and of no great importance. Paul distinguished between these things, and so should we. Stott says we must not allow secondary issues, non-creedal issues, or, or ones where Scripture is silent or Scripture is up for debate, to, to drive a wedge between us. In my experience, it's generally the secondary issues that drive us from one another. Now, if you left a church because they denied the dual natures of Christ, that Jesus was not fully God and fully man, good for you. That was a heretical church. But generally speaking, in, in my experience, I bet a lot of you, some of you who ended up here having left another church did it precisely because of a difference of opinion on some of these secondary issues, the trappings of church culture. One topic where we have a lot of disagreement within the Church of Jesus Christ has to do with baptism. We all agree there should be repentance, there should be faith, and there should be water. We disagree at times on the order of those things or the quantity of water involved. Some say it only counts if you have been fully immersed in water. Now go really early church and it's got to be a body of moving water. You'd also be naked at times in the early church. I don't think us here us debating that one as much. But is it okay if you just sprinkle a person? Does it count if you pour water over their head? Uh, can you baptize a baby or an infant or can you only baptize those you know, people of you know, past a certain age who've chosen for themselves and they've, this is a believer's baptism for them? There are some people who say, look, water baptism is fine, it's important, it's something we should do, but the thing you really need is spirit baptism. You need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. We disagree on all kinds of things related to baptism. Christians are like professional-level elite disagreers with one another. 
we disagree over the degree to which God is involved in determining human events. This is a conversation about free will. Did you actually choose to follow Jesus? Can any of us actually choose that? Or was it predetermined that that's what we would do? Is God's grace something that we can say no to? Or is it something that is irresistible? We disagree over these things. We disagree over all kinds of things related to the Holy Spirit. There's some people who read the New Testament and think, believe every gift that's mentioned in the New Testament is active and accessible to the believer today. There are also large groups of Christians who say all of those gifts ceased with the apostles. There are some who believe that particular gifts are available to all people, and if you're a real Christian, actually full of the Holy Spirit, then you'll have that gift, and that will be the evidence that you are really full of the Holy Spirit. Christians disagree about alcohol or substances in general. I grew up in a teetotaling denomination, meaning there was no alcohol involved whatsoever, not at the Lord's table, not at your wedding. You know, there's no alcohol at all. I've also been to some Anglican events where they served beer at the church building. It was awesome, honestly. (laughs) It's like my freedom in Christ. I love it. This is great. There are people who think very differently about that. A disputable matter in the church is the role of women in pastoral leadership. I wholeheartedly affirm women in pastoral leadership, as does my bishop, as does our diocese. And there are large groups of Christians, even within the Anglican world, hear me, who read the scriptures and they say, a plain reading of the text does not permit me to agree with you on that. We see that issue differently. You know, in some circles, whether a pastor or a priest wears, you know, formal vestments is a really important issue. When uh, David Taylor was here a couple of weeks ago, I taught you how to cross yourself. And some of you were like, mm, 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 not going to do it. Nope, nope, nope. And not only because you're like the kind of person who doesn't like to do what you're asked to do or taught to do, you're like, that's Catholic. I don't want to do that. And many of us, how uncharitable is this, were grown up, grew up understanding Catholic to non-equal Christian. I don't believe that. But so many of us were trained to associate that with some kind of with outsider, with unchristian. Within Anglican world, there can be debates about the degrees to which you follow the prayer book, the, the degrees to which you're, you know, evangelical or more on the Anglo-Catholic side of things. Um, A a very common tension that I experience and see in our church is the Lord keeps sending to us couples where one is Catholic and the other is Baptist or something else. I mean, I'm telling you, it's not one or two couples. It's like seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven couples. They just keep coming. I don't know. I don't know why. And there's a very real tension. There's a fear of like, well, are you going to have a Catholic priest do the wedding? Can they be involved in the wedding? Oh, a Protestant's doing it, and he's not even wearing a collar. And, and these things, these, there are very real issues that divide families and divide the church families. And these disputable matters, you know, even if we, we want to take this laissez-faire, agree-to-disagree posture on them, can create very real tension. They can lead to strife and divisiveness and enmity between believers. Paul says there are some of those issues where, which are disputable, and we need to know how to handle those with wisdom and with gentleness. At the same time, he would also say there are those issues that are, for us, indisputable. I mean, it's not like he's an anything-goes theologian. Look what he says in Galatians chapter 1. 
as we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted and what I preached, let them be under God's curse. This is not a choose-your-own-adventure thing. There are issues that are for us indisputable. If you do not believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, if you, you do not believe that Jesus of Nazareth was Israel's Messiah, the chosen of God, bodily raised from the dead, who now rules as Lord and King over all creation, if you do not believe in the Holy Spirit, as the Nicene Creed says, the Lord and the giver of life, you are outside of historic Orthodox Christianity. This includes all of those topics that are covered in the great creeds, the, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the, uh, the least popular of the three that you should read them, the Athanasian Creeds. But the Scripture is also clear on some other things related to our, our um, navigating the world with wisdom and with virtue, with integrity. Things like witchcraft. The Bible's like, no, stay away in all of its forms from little ones like, like horoscopes and tarot cards and anything that, that moves its way toward the darker stuff. The Bible says, no, stay away from that. Everything related to issues of sexual immorality. The Bible is, is really clear. We have to be wise. We're meant to be different. Idolatry in all of its forms. Idolatry always leads to some form of injustice. Idolatry which violates the first two of the commandments. We must fiercely fight against. No matter your cultural background, there are topics on which the Scripture and the church and its reading of the Scripture is clear, which are not up for debate, no matter how many people wish they were. But what the Apostle Paul is doing in, in this conversation in Romans chapter 14 with these believers is not outlining those issues which are indisputable. You can go read the rest of the letter if you want to, but saying, what do we do when we have these honest-to-God disagreements about issues which are disputable? And he, he makes a case for what we're meant to do by stating it positively and then also stating it negatively. And then he anchors these ethical admonitions in some really deep waters. What are you to do with the believer with whom you have honest disagreements about disputable matters? We are to accept them. The word used for accept here connotes a vision of hospitality. I think about my Aunt Joyce. Uncle Ed and Aunt Joyce watch services from time to time. I remember growing up and going over to Joyce and Ed's house, and Joyce made this sweet tea that's like, I've never had anything like Aunt Joyce's sweet tea. And Uncle Ed was a fisher, and he'd smoke trout, and we'd have these really buttery crackers with a Dijon mustard and smoked trout on it with your, with your you know, special tea. It was like, this is the best. To accept someone in this biblical sense is that vision of hospitality. It's anticipating a person's needs. It's, it's seeing them. It's, it's welcoming them. It, it, it connotes uh, kindness and respect and care. And this acceptance that we're meant to have with believers with whom we disagree on disputable matters is supposed to be genuine and not given grudgingly. We're meant to, to um, extend this kind of kindness. It does come with some conditions. The condition is that we are united on the indisputable matters. John Stott warned against the idea, the popular notion in the church of unconditional acceptance in which membership is offered to everybody with no questions asked and no conditions laid down. He says, for though God's love is indeed unconditional, 
God's acceptance of us, he's using this as a synonym for justification. Our justification is not since it depends on our repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. They are personally, the merits of Christ's death and resurrection are personally realized through repentance and through faith. John chapter 1 picks up similar conditions. Scripture says, Jesus came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So what were the conditions? He came to all, but only those who received him and those who believed him were given the right to become children of God. Paul says, we're meant to have unity on these indisputable matters, but where you have have broken fellowship over disputable matters, you need to accept. You need to accept others. He states it there positively. He also states it here negatively that our acceptance of those with whom we disagree on disputable matters must be characterized by the absence of judgment and contempt. Verse 3, the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Now, when it says we're to be without judgment, it of course doesn't mean we're suspending our ability to discern right and wrong. Not at all what it means. The absence of judgment means giving up a condemning spirit toward each other. It means the, 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 the absence of contempt is the absence of disgust toward others. And it can actually be really fun to have disgust toward people and to bond with others who are equally disgusted. I mean, the dark parts of you know what I'm saying, right? It can be kind of fun to dunk on people in that way. And, you know, you can, you can feel disgust for a person without even saying something verbally. What I'm going to do right now, I'm going to list a series of names, and I'm going to watch the change in your face, and I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but disgust looks like a snarled lip. It can look like a furrowed brow, or it can look like, you know, looking up. It can be like an exhale with a grunt, like, Ugh. All of those things feel like disgust, contempt. There are Christians whose entire personality is built on contempt for other Christians. There are bloggers and podcasters and churches whose entire brand is built on contempt for other people. I was listening to this um, very deep you know, high-minded, high-brow podcast that you guys probably never would have heard of because it's just kind of like for the theologically, you know, astute. It's called um, Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. (laughs) And I forget the actor that Conan was talking to. It's a really fun podcast for me, but um, I forget the actor that Conan was talking to, but he was talking to this actor whose wife has an axiom about how to talk to other people about your diet. And her rule is you can tell people what you do eat but you can't tell people what you don't eat. Because what happens when you tell people what you don't eat is you immediately otherize the people who eat those things. And all of a sudden, they're feeling defensive. They're feeling like, well, who do you think you are? You think you're better than us? But I thought that, man, that's actually a really great social axiom, that you can tell people the things that you're for, 
We should major in telling the people the things that we are for, and if we say them at all, we minor in the things that we are against. I like this as a rule, state what you value positively and aim not to state things negatively if you can help it. So I try to do this as best as I'm able to with other churches. Um, you know, from time to time, I'll just randomly pray for other churches in our city. Some of you have told me that has meant something to you. And, you know, pray for St. Anthony's and pray for some Catholic churches and Baptist and Pentecostal. And I, I like, to the best of my ability, to both seem and be charitable to other churches. Which is why last week after preaching on, you know, conflict and sin in the church, I was kicking myself and I truthfully felt so guilty because at the beginning of my sermon, I was talking about how I don't love hype in the church world. I made some like unplanned jokes about how some churches use social media. And remember, I was like using this hand gesture a lot. And I, even though it was silly, I felt so guilty doing it in the days that follow. Because you can tell people what you do eat, but you can't tell people what you don't eat. And I felt like, oh, here I am being uncharitable on a disputable matter, a church's social media policy. So I actually sent a, a note to our staff just apologizing, and I apologize to you as well. I don't want to be uncharitable. There are times at which in the family of God we will drive one another nuts, just like your siblings will, but we're still a family at the end of the day. And I want to speak well of those who are in our family. Now, it's certainly okay to have concern. Um, next year, we have another presidential election. Do you know this? <laughs> we'll start making our facial expressions now. <laughs> and I am concerned about the, the partisan political engagement by some pastors and some churches at times. It's okay to have concern. It's not okay to have contempt. It's not okay to blast other believers publicly or even just to write them off as a person privately. It's also not okay, in my opinion, to build your whole persona around I'm concerned. And here's the bottom line thing that I do think is very important for us, is that it's not enough to critique. That's so easy. What we must learn to do is to embody the good, which is so much harder. We need to give our first energies to shining the light of Christ, not merely cursing the darkness. One of my favorite authors, Andy Crouch, said the only way to change culture is to create more of it. The only way to change something. What is something that you're passionate about? What's something that you're angry about that you want to see reformed? The only way that's going to be changed is through doing something, creating something new. Not only to criticize the vice, but to embody the virtue. And this is so much more difficult to do. Which brings us back to a question we began wrestling with last week in navigating conflict with other believers, which is, what am I responsible for in this situation? So even if someone criticizes you or me and 90% of it is wrong, if there's 10% of it, that it that's right, you and I are responsible to eat the meat and spit out the bones. To say, okay, what more can I learn about myself in this situation? And, and in a similar way, when you see another believer or you see another church or you hear another Christian podcast where uh, someone has a differing perspective than you, uh, you can ask yourself, what am I responsible for in this situation? And 
Nine times out of ten, guess what your responsibility is? Nothing! Now, it may be to consider, okay, how am I, to what degree am I embodying the good as I feel myself inclined to criticize the bad in this person? If every Christian were navigating this issue just like me, would the situation be totally resolved? If there is responsibility, it's on us to consider to what degrees and in what ways am I embodying the good and where do I need to repent and reform where I'm not. That's where we should put our energy. I am going to give you permission. It's perfectly fine to have no opinion on many issues. If someone asks you, hey, what do you think about that, you know, fill-in-the-blank Christian leader or church or whatever? Nothing at all. <laughs> You're allowed to say that. It's okay to keep your opinion to yourself. It's like, I don't know a lot about them, but God bless them. That's a perfectly fine answer. Even in your heart, though, if you withhold public criticism, even in your heart, I think that we need to be careful to handle others, even people who we may never actually meet, other pastors, other churches, other, you know, other people. We need to handle them in such a way that we could accept them were our paths to cross. Or think about it like this. Never speak about another believer in such a way that you couldn't stand in front of them and say, this is the body of Christ given for you. And this is the blood of Christ shed for you. Stott says, the best way to determine what our attitude to other people should be is to determine what God's attitude to them is. Accept one another without judgment and without contempt. And Paul brings these two ethical instructions to bear on the church and, and builds them on this foundation of rich doctrine, on these four theological realities that we're meant to accept one another because God accepts us. Verse 3, the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. The one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. Why? God accepted that person. The person that you're lambasting. God accepted that person, that brother, that sister. Go reread Titus chapter 3. Go reread the tail end of Matthew 18 in the parable of the unforgiving servant. We accept one another because Christ accepted us. Number two, we accept one another. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. Verse 4 Who are you to judge someone else's servant? Jesus is their Lord. Jesus is my Lord. If there's an issue, don't you think he'll take it up with his own servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. We accept one another because God accepts us. We accept one another because Jesus is Lord. Third, we accept one another because we are to one another family. Verse 10, why do you judge your brother or sister? Now, Paul's not talking about biological family here. He's talking about the family that has been made a reality in Christ, Jew and Gentile, slave-free, rich, poor men and women. Why do you have contempt for your brother or your sister? 
as I shared last week, one of the big downsides of the, you know, the call to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is we forgot that, that in being baptized, we're being born again into a new family. We didn't even realize we were siblings. We're related. When I was growing up at Woodlake Assembly of God, there were some believers who were so faithful that they were brother or sister in their name, like Brother Bob Cobb. That was his name, Brother Bob Cobb. He was Brother Bob. I also knew another Brother Bob, a Brother Bob Stamps, who some of y'all knew in Tulsa at ORU and then was at Asbury Seminary. That's Brother Bob, you know. Uh, We're brothers and sisters to one another. We're meant to be family. Who can drive you crazier than your actual brothers and sisters? No one. Who can drive you crazier in the church but your brothers and sisters? But we still belong to one another. And we're meant to treat one another with that familial loyalty. We accept one another because God accepted us, because Jesus is Lord, because we are family. And we accept one another because we will all stand before the judgment seat. Verse 11, as it's written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let's stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of another brother or sister. How would it fare for you if God said to you, look, with the same posture and attitude... And standards that you judge others, I'm going to judge you. We can all do better. And this is where I'm convinced the gospel invites us into a way of life that is better and richer and freer. The the psalmist tells us that God has not treated us as our sins deserve. And Jesus, on the cross, being crucified, says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And to operate in this kind of way tells us that our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is animated by an internal muchness. That God is is driven by this internal bounty or generosity of being that makes our way of relating to one another seem so paltry and stingy and small. My prayer is that God would so work in our lives and our life together, and we may so cooperate with Him that we would be truly united of one mind and one heart on those things that are essential, that are the non-negotiables, indisputable, and that we would overflow with charity and lightness, and Lord knows it is going to take a lot of humor, and at times it's just going to take plain forbearance and endurance to stay one together on those issues, those those disputable matters that can divide us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we confess that we are brothers and sisters to each other in Christ. And Lord, we confess at times we drive one another nuts. At times we have contempt for each other impatience for each other. At times we behave as if the other did not exist. Lord, forgive us for insulting your generosity in the way that we've treated one another. You said, by your love for one another, we're all the world know that you're my disciples. Forgive us, Lord. We can do better. 
I pray that you would expand the, the resources and our awareness of the resources that you've given us and through the Holy Spirit. We'd recognize that there's more than enough love and joy and patience and kindness and gentleness, etc., given to us in the Spirit than we can possibly imagine. Lord Jesus, I pray that as we come to the table today and some brother or sister stands in front of us, I pray that you would help us through the Spirit to see the face of one with whom we need to be reconciled. It could be a stranger with whom we simply need to let them off the hook in our heart. It could be a real person that we need to reach out to. But any ungenerous tendencies in us, Lord, would you make plain and change and reform us and cause us to extend to others the same wideness that is in your mercy that you show us. This I pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.